Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Block. The gunman was in possession of several uh, semi-automatic handguns and uh, two uh, semi-automatic uh, rifles. The Liberal government has announced a ban on what it calls military-style assault firearms. The plan, which was unveiled by the Prime Minister on Friday, is being criticized on both sides of the gun debate. It came into effect immediately through an ordering council rather than being put through Parliament. Joining me now to discuss this announcement is Public Safety Minister Bill Blair. Minister, thank you for joining us. Of course. Nice to be here with you, Mercedes. Sir, can I ask you to explain what exactly is your government banning? Is it a look of a particular type of firearm or is it a capability? Oh, no, ma'am. It, it, it is a capability. These are all weapons that were designed uh, in their original purpose for military use. They were designed for soldiers to, to in combat, to kill other soldiers. Uh, that's their, their initial design. It is what they were intended to do, and quite frankly, in, in this country and around the world, tragically, that's what they've been used to do, but unfortunately to kill innocent civilians. And, and so all of these, these weapons, um, by, by type and by characteristic, and there's two different classifications that we are using here, are clearly the, the, the provenance of these weapons was military in its original purpose, and unfortunately they have absolutely no um, purpose, purpose or value in, in a civil society, and, and we believe that they represent an unacceptable risk to Canadians. And so we have moved today, or, or on Friday, um, with measures to prohibit those weapons so that they will no longer be available for sale or use in Canada. Minister Blair, does that mean that you are banning all firearms that have semi-automatic capabilities? No, ma'am, it does not. And, and, and the weapons that, that, we, that are on the list are all semi-automatic, at least the, the ones that are being uh, prohibited by type. Is they are semi-automatic. They all um, use centerfire ammunition. They are of, of a caliber above a 22 caliber, which is rimfire. Um, they are all capable of, of rapid sustained fire and, and for t uh, housing a, a larger capacity magazine. Um, and they all have, um, as, in, as their origin in design, the use, use in the military. Um, but, Minister, haven't, example, haven't military weapons, uh, military firearms been banned for some time? Anything that is fully automatic or that has a large magazine has been prohibited in Canada. So uh, I, I did notice you also banned things like artillery and rocket launchers, which are clearly military-grade weapons. Uh, but in terms of this particular weapon, if you ban this sort of firearm, does it mean there will be nothing left on the market that has that same capability anymore? Mercedes, let me be, be, help you with this. You, you made reference to automatic weapons, which ha are prohibited and banned in this country. We're not referring to that. We are referring to semi-automatic weapons designed for military use, capable of sustained fire using, using a certain level of, of, of caliber of, of ammunition and capable of accepting large capacity magazines. We've been quite explicit, and we've actually listed 1,500 different models and variants of, of essentially 13 um, different families of weapons. They have no place in hunting. They have no place in sport shooting. They have no place in Canadian society. And, and we have had too many tragic incidents in this country at Ecole Polytechnique, at the Quebec Mosque, at Dawson College, at Moncton, at Fredericton, and most recently in Nova Scotia, 
where similar weapons have been used. Can, can I just ask you about people. Nova Scotia, though, Minister, because your, your government has mentioned it a number of times, but the RCMP have stated that they believe that all of the firearms that were used there were illegal. The shooter did not have a firearms license, and they believe most were smuggled in from the United States. If the issue is also guns being smuggled in from the United States and not just legally bought in Canada, how are you going to address that at the border? Okay, two, two very important points. I am not uh, going to tell you what the RCMP should tell you and will tell you about the, the actual weapons that were involved in this case. But I believe when that information becomes publicly available, Canadians will understand the relevance of the measures that we have taken today in the prohibition of military-style weapons to the tragedy in Nova Scotia. We have also said this is a first step, but not the only thing we're doing, Mercedes. We have also said we're going to bring forward legislation in the spring. And as soon as Parliament resumes, we will bring that legislation forward, as we promised in the campaign, and as it's clearly indicated in my uh, mandate letter. We'll bring forward legislation that will give us new tools, new authorities, to, to, to stop the illegal smuggling of firearms into Canada, the illegal trafficking of firearms through diversion and straw purchase, and the illegal firearms that get into the hands of criminals through theft by bring, implementing new measures, the strong measures to, to, to require secure storage of those weapons. We'll also bring in new measures to control ammunition, large-capacity magazines. We've announced our intention to bring forward regulations and, and legislation that will in, in, allow us to implement what are called red flag laws so that we can disarm and remove firearms for dangerous situations and individuals who are involved but in But those red flag laws already exist, incidents. don't they? So are, are they just oh, not being implemented? Mercedes, I've also heard, um, and you're parroting a little bit, the, the language of the lobbyist. And there are one no, sir, I'm not, I'm not parroting the language of the lobbyist. The RCMP have said there's red then, flag laws. They're supposed to be able to remove well, weapons from people who and, they believe are a danger. And, are, are they not able to and, do and, that? And, and, and as you probably recall, I spent 40 years as a police officer, 10 as the chief in Toronto, and I can tell you the, the limitations of the existing legislative framework under Section 117 of the Criminal Code. We want to significantly expand that so that, for example, if a doctor becomes aware of an individual who is suffering from a, an illness and could be, represent a danger to, to themselves through suicide, or someone who's involved in an intimate partner violence or neighbor dispute that could lead to a dangerous situation, or for an individual who's online spouting hate and advocating violence against a religious minority or a vulnerable population. Those are circumstances where it's a dangerous situation and the presence of a firearm can make it deadly. And I want to make sure not just the police, but doctors, family members, victims, community members can take the steps necessary to render that situation safe. That's an effective red flag law. Handguns kill more Canadians than any other type of firearm every year. Why not ban them? We know that, that the, the majority of handgun owners in this country are responsible and, and they're very conscientious in how they store and use and acquire their weapons, but we also know that when those handguns get in the hands of people that would commit crimes with them, that they, they can be deadly. And, and so we will also bring in very strong measures, again, to prevent their theft through stronger storage, to prevent their smuggling through, through new offences and penalties and measures to protect them, those guns from coming across our border. And for those people that illegally traffic in them, by buying them legally and then selling them illegally, there will be new tools for okay. the police, but also new offences and penalties that Minister, will prevent those crimes. I'm sorry to jump in again. I have to stop you there because we are out of time, but we greatly appreciate you joining us to explain the uh, new rules that you're implementing. Thank you very much, Mercedes. That a response to flooding and in due course forest fires will be 
complicated by the reality that it overlaps with the response to coronavirus. So we will respond as we always do. We are very aware of the situation in Fort McMurray and are working on that right now. That was Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland talking about the situation in Alberta and the flooding up in Fort McMurray. COVID-19 at meatpacking plants, as well as a historic crash in oil prices, have all seen Alberta taking hit after hit. So what will it take for the province to pull through these tough times? Joining me now is Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney. Welcome to the show, Premier. Good to be here, Mercedes. How is the situation out there in Alberta right now? Well, first of all, the floods have largely abated in northern Alberta, although we're keeping a close eye on it. There's just been very high ice packs, ice jams on the Peace and Athabasca rivers in particular. Uh, you know, it, what's just so unbelievably sad about this circumstance is that um, the city of Fort McMurray was hit so hard with uh, much of the downtown underwater and many homes that had just been rebuilt after the fires. They, homes that were lost in the fire uh, four years ago had been rebuilt and now underwater with enormous damage. And those many of those folks lost their jobs because of the uh, economic crisis here or because of uh, COVID-related measures. Um, and so it just uh, seems like people in Fort McMurray in particular can't get a break. Obviously, across Alberta, we uh, continue to be uh, affected by the pandemic. Uh, we, we are moving towards uh, phase one in our relaunch strategy. Um, the good news is that I think we've fared much better than most with a much lower level of hospitalizations and ICU admissions on a per capita basis than, than most uh, jurisdictions around the world. So uh, we think uh, we've got this, but we're going to have to stay vigilant. Premier, can you walk me through a little bit of how you decided which parts of the economy to reopen and when? The first phase, I say, will begin on, on May 14th, although there are some things that we've already begun opening this weekend. Uh, provincial parks are being reopened, for example, golf courses, more outdoor recreation, as an example. Um, you know, Mercedes, my view and that of our officials is, is that we, we cannot eliminate the risk of the, the coronavirus. Uh, what we have to do is to manage the risk. And the key factor in that, of course, is to keep the projected peak of hospitalizations well below the maximum capacity of our healthcare system. Right now, we have about 2,000 hospital acute care beds available for COVID patients, but we only have about 90 people in those beds. So um, similarly on, uh, on, on ICU, we have huge excess capacity and we've done so well in stockpiling equipment that we've been able to share uh, some of our surplus equipment with other Canadian provinces that uh, were facing a tougher situation. I know those provinces, including Ontario, where I am, have appreciated that generosity. But your province is in dire financial straits right now, Premier. Some are asking if this is the time to introduce a sales tax, a PST. Is that something you're looking at? Well, let me say, right now, we're dealing with a, a double economic whammy. Really, uh, obviously, the global coronavirus recession and then uh, the lowest oil prices in history. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, uh, the price for Canadian oil has been at, at some points negative, below zero. Like we literally, our producers have had to pay people to take away their, their energy. I'm expecting to see unemployment as high as 25% in this quarter. Uh, we may be seeing a 30% contraction in our economy. And I cannot overstate the degree of economic adversity. In relative terms, it will be the most challenging period in Alberta's economy since the Great Depression of the 1930s. I do not believe that the right 
response in the midst of that uh, economic crisis is to impose a new tax. Now, when we get through all of this, I've said in uh, to Albertans that there will be a fiscal reckoning. Uh, our government had committed in our platform to have a tax reform panel at some point during our mandate. Uh, so that will be a debate that Albertans will have in the future. But right now our focus is on uh, gradually reopening the economy from the pandemic and, and doing everything we can to protect uh, the financial security of families and job creators. Have you heard any more from the federal government about help for the oil sector? I know they'd introduced a number of programs that said, they say uh, small and medium-sized pardon me, businesses can apply for. Nothing for the big oil companies yet. Do you think that that's coming? Well, Minister Morneau said, I think three to four weeks ago, that a major package would be coming within hours uh, or days. Uh, we're now moving past a month since that uh, commitment was made. Um, we continue to have discussions with the federal government. Yesterday, or sorry, this past week, I was on the uh, First Minister's uh, call with the Prime Minister, and once again, with the support of premiers from across the country, emphasized how critical it is that we ensure a future for the largest subsector of the Canadian economy, our oil and gas sector, which creates uh, directly and indirectly half a million jobs. It is our largest export industry. It is responsible for $370 billion of government revenues over the past 18 years alone. And I've reminded the Prime Minister that in the global financial crisis in 2008, uh, Alberta was there for the rest of Canada. We helped to keep our economy moving and we had a national government that ensured a future for the Canadian, central Canadian auto manufacturing sector. Uh, this industry, this province, as well as Newfoundland and Labrador and Saskatchewan, we need the same kind of response to ensure a future for those half a million Canadians whose employment depends on the energy sector. Premier, we just have a few moments left, but I wanted to ask your reaction to the Liberal government's announcement here in Ottawa about new restrictions on firearms. The, the significant majority of uh, guns that are used in the commission of crimes in Canada are smuggled in from the United States. And so I think the federal government is missing the target by focusing on law-abiding uh, owners. And in, instead, they should take the, the, that effort and those resources and focus on stopping the widespread smuggling of illegal firearms across the uh, Canada-U.S. border. Um, and so we're very disappointed that they're, uh, they're uh, in the middle of this pandemic, I think focused on the politics of, of this and going about it in the wrong way, crack down on the smugglers, not on law-abiding Canadians. Well, that's all the time we have together today. Thank you so much for joining us, Premier. Thank you. Right now in the processing uh, capacity is at a critical stage within Canada. Uh, Cargill is going to try and reopen on a limited basis on Monday. JBS uh, in Brooks is hanging on by a thread, meaning about 70% of our cattle processing is, is at risk. Uh, with 22 plants now closed in the United States, uh, the issue is even more critical. That was Alberta Conservative MP John Barlow. More than 1,200 COVID-19 cases have been linked to the Cargill meat processing plant near High River, Alberta, forcing it to temporarily close and cease operations last month. But it's not the only meat processing plant in Alberta experiencing an outbreak. A second plant near Brooks, Alberta, has nearly 300 cases among its workers. Is enough being done to protect these workers and the meat industry supply chain that feeds all all of us in Canada. 
Joining me now is Paul Minema, National President of United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Thank you so much for joining us, Paul. Thank you, Mercedes. Paul, you represent over a quarter of a million workers. Uh, your members are working in High River, Alberta, at a plant that's been linked to over 1,200 COVID-19 cases. That plant set to reopen Monday. You did not want that to happen. Tell me about why. Well, we're quite concerned with the outbreak that was there and that we're not sure. You know, we, we can't confirm that all of the right measures have been taken to, re, to reopen the plant. We think it might be somewhat premature. We are we're not we've not heard from the Department of Health as to whether whether all the required uh, processes have been taken place. And we have members who are terrified. Uh, they've been working in this facility. They, you know, uh, we cautioned uh, Cargill before about some things that were coming and asked them about closing the plant. Uh, that didn't occur. And you know, here we are today with this massive outbreak and really no assurances yet for our members as to whether this is a safe protocol to go back to. What were you hearing from your members about what working conditions were like in the plant before it closed? Well, the working conditions have changed in the aspect that there are a number of protocols that have been put in place because of COVID-19. We think that uh, there are other measures, and one of the most important ones that we're talking about is controlling the line speed, to reduce the line speed. These facilities have people working shoulder to shoulder. There are a number of protections that have been put in place by a number of employers. We don't believe that that's consistent. And I think that we can safely say now with the, with the outbreak that maybe those measures aren't enough and we have to look at additional measures to make sure that our members, their workers are safe in these facilities. This outbreak demonstrated that the measures that were in place to this point may not have been enough. What measures do you think need to be in place in addition to those that have already been brought in? We've been asking uh, uh, the employers, our employers, where we represent members, is that we believe that it's not business as usual, that we can't continue to operate at the capacity that the, the facilities are trying to operate at. The only safe way that we see in some of these facilities, the way they're equipped, is to get the physical distance that is needed is to slow the production line down. And I think it's been demonstrated in a couple of plants in Alberta and in these situations where, where proper equipment and proper physical distancing is not, not, uh, is not meeting the needs that we get, we get outbreaks. And we're not, uh, we've not been assured by the employer that some of these precautions after this outbreak have been remedied before they're starting again. Who do you hold responsible for the outbreak? Do you think that it's the employer or is it the government of Alberta? Well, I think there's, you know, the situation is that we are in unprecedented times. And uh, I, I would not, uh, I don't think I'm going to point my finger, finger at anyone in particular saying, hey, it's, it's your fault that's all this occurred. I think there's, uh, there's enough uh, finger pointing going on around. But I do believe that, you know, in the situation that we have here, to reopen the plant without a, without a robust discussion, without uh, confirming to the union whether some of the protocols that, that might have been lacking before that contributed to the outbreak have been dealt with, or we haven't heard from the government as to whether their, their, the cleanliness of the plant, the re, redoing of the plant, has been done to a degree that is satisfactory to the government. We've not heard from anyone. When you see all of this, does it raise concerns for you about the safety of Canada's food supply chain? 
I don't think it, ra it raises concerns about the safety of the food for sure. I think you know Canada has one of the best inspection models for, for our food, and I, I have confidence in that. I do get concerned, however, that can we maintain uh, production if we run these plants at full speed as we have and without uh, the required uh, consistency in the safety measures, is that do we have another shutdown in the future? Where are we better off? Slowing down the production, getting the physical distancing that we need, making sure that everything is operating well and keeping a consistent production or risking another breakout. So you're concerned then that if there's not proper measures in place, you could see these plants shut down and that could create a shortage potentially of meat? That's, in my mind, is a more likelihood than just operating at a normal, uh, that it's not business as usual, that we, we are in a situation where we have barriers put up, where we're trying to physically distance, where people are working for, wearing personal protective equipment, that there are other measures in the plant that could be helpful, like a further social distancing which would, which would result in probably a line speed reduction, but a consistent slower production may be better off than running at full speed and risking more break-ins. South of the border, President Trump has ordered these kinds of plants to stay open as an essential service. Do you think that has any impact up here? Well, I mean, the, the, the facilities that we're talking about in, in High River are, are, uh, are internationally owned facilities. It may have an impact. Uh, I don't know that, that, you know, a strict ordering from government to maintain a facility operating necessarily provides all of the safety that's required for the folks in there. And that uh, that may actually cause the opposite. If you have to, if you mandate that the plant has to be open, rather having some checks and measures as to when things could change or if there's a health concern that needs to be dealt with. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for the invitation received. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening. And a reminder to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For the West Block, I'm Mercedes Stevenson.